Hello, my name is Steve Brown, and I'm the worship leader at Vintage Faith Church. At Vintage Faith, we believe the Word of God is what changes and transforms a person. We hope you enjoy the next 30 to 40 minute sermon of the Word of God being proclaimed and explained. Enjoy the message. Okay, as you know, if you've been coming here for a while, we've been doing this series on the Son of Man, and approximately, Jesus used this of himself more than any other title, but approximately 84, 85 times he uses the title Son of Man, identifying himself with humanity, but also proving from Daniel 7 that he is the divine, he is God who came to earth to take on human flesh for us. So when you see this right here, no pain, no gain, what do you think? Ouch. Okay. We've got an ouchie over here. Okay. What, what else? What do you think? What's that? Working out. Exercise. Our coach, my football coach used to say that to us. We go, come on, it's so cheesy. Think about at, at the end of a year in December, from December to January, there's a lot of things that happen. People start what? What do they start doing? They start, yeah, resolutions, gym memberships. Gym memberships explode. People go, you know, they're all excited. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, this is a pain. And then they quit. We try those diets, you know. For me, it'll last like a week. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Forget it. Forget not having sugar in my coffee. What? That's too much pain. Or if you're saying, you know what, I want to save. I've got to save for retirement, and I'm going to work on this. And yet, throughout the week, every, every day, you go, ah, I can get this. I can get that. You pay, spend that little bit of money. I don't want to sacrifice. And you're like, how come I can't save any money? Because it hurts. And sometimes we think this is just an American issue, that, you know, Americans are soft, that we have problems with facing things, we avoid pain and suffering. Who wants that, right? Who wants human? From a human perspective, we try to avoid pain. And it's not just true of Americans, it was also true in Jesus' day. It was true of the disciples. After Peter tells everyone who Jesus is. He basically says, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you are the Savior of the world. And Jesus does this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is a prominent theme in the Gospels where Jesus begins to tell his disciples, the Son of Man is going to die. And this becomes a shock to them. They can't get it. It really bothers them because they read or at least understood from Daniel that the Son of Man would come back, come from heaven, be God who comes to earth. And when he returns to earth, he would set up his earthly kingdom. And that's the concept that they had. They had this amazing concept. And so when Jesus says this, the spokesman for the group Peter, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That just blows my mind. Now, Peter had some concept of who Jesus was. And there are times in your life, I know there are times in mine, we try to rebuke God. <laughs> we try to tell God what to do. No, you, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to have this in my life. 
And so Peter is trying to straighten Jesus out because that was not what they were expecting with regard to the Son of Man. They were expecting glory. They were expecting great times. Even the two boys, the two, two of his disciples got mommy to go to Jesus and say, hey, convince Convinced Jesus that you guys could sit, you know, that we could sit on Jesus left and right. And they asked for that in the kingdom. And Jesus says, it's not for me to say, but are you willing to suffer? So the interesting thing is here, here's Peter saying, we want to avoid the pain. We want to go right to the glory. Isn't that the way life is? We want to avoid the pain. I don't want to have to sacrifice that. I don't want to have to give up this. I don't want to have to go that way. Jesus didn't go, okay, Peter, you're right. No, he doesn't do that. He actually says this. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Pretty strong language. The word Satan means adversary. You're fighting against what God really wants to do. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And isn't that what we do sometimes? We go, God, I don't want to go through those trials. I don't want to face things that will develop my character. Let it be easy. I want comfort. And yet Jesus makes it clear. That if you want to be his disciple, listen to what he continues to say in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. and He said, whoever wants to be my follower, my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Wow, he's calling us to suffer for the Son of Man. Why does the Son of Man require suffering in order to be his follower? Here's, it's very important here. Don't think, as some religions have taught, oh, you've got to suffer to earn your way into heaven. No, Christ did the suffering for heaven. It's a free gift. He suffered. He died. When he died on the cross, he said, it's finished. Salvation's a free gift. Now he's saying, if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to suffer. There's a battle going on. There's a war. Your old nature doesn't want to do what God wants. The world around us is saying, you're crazy for following Jesus. And we're fighting against that. So what is the purpose? What is the purpose? He is saying to us that this is the way that we battle. This is the new reality. The old reality, when God first created the, the universe, he created Adam and Eve. What was the Garden of Eden like? Anybody know? What was it like? Paradise. Was there any pain? No. Was there any suffering? No. There was no sin. And the moment they took from the fruit, pain, suffering, sin, separation from God, all started at that moment. They later on died physically, but they died spiritually the moment they ate from that fruit. And that's the new reality we find ourselves in. We're in this battle. We're in this war. It's not what we like, but it's true. And there's a purpose that Jesus wants us to suffer, not because he doesn't like us, but because he knows that's the only way we're going to be able to say no to our old nature. That's the only way we're going to be able to fight the world that's saying, do whatever you want. Get the gain without the pain. And first Peter, Peter finally got this. He understood it. And in his book, really, it's a book to churches in Asia Minor about the suffering that they were going through with regard to their faith, 
He says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I mean, God has called us to suffer. And you're going, wow, this just seems strange. But that's what he desires for us to do. He desires for us to surrender. He desires for us to fight against things that, with his power, with his help. If you want to be his disciple, if you want to be his follower. In order to follow Christ, we will suffer because we're battling against sin, self, the world, and Satan. So there will be pain. There will be conflict. How can we face suffering as a follower of the Son of Man? How can we do this? I remember coming, coming to faith in Christ and everything was great. There was all these cool things happening. God was answering all these prayers. I was so excited. There was so many cool things happening. And then when six months into it, all of a sudden I hit a wall. And I thought, whoa, what is going on? And I just wanted to quit. I wanted to walk away. I said, I didn't sign up for this. And there's the misunderstanding. There's the misconception. Jesus' salvation is totally free through Christ. But the following of him costs us surrender, costs us pain. So how do we do it? In Hebrews 12, it's a, it's a great passage dealing with this whole concept of following Christ in the midst of suffering. Because the believers in Rome, they believe it was written. They don't know who the author was, but they believe it was written to Christians in Rome who were suffering. They were Hebrew believers, and they were going through all sorts of persecution. And so here's a great passage for us to say, okay, how do we live our faith in the midst of suffering? How do we follow Christ when it doesn't seem like a lot of fun sometimes? It's painful. There are three ways. And he uses some metaphors here, but three ways in this passage, 12, Hebrews 12, 1 to 13. Run the race. Okay, I'm going backwards. There we go. <laughs> welcome, the dis welcome the discipline that God sends and embrace the community. So here's, here's how we do this. Let's look at this. Let's take this apart. Hebrews chapter 12. Run the race. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That word endures used four times in this passage. Saying to the believer, this is no easy thing. This is not a cakewalk. Learn from the past. He says there's a great cloud of witnesses. He's actually talking about the believers mentioned in chapter 11. He's not saying, I don't believe he's saying that they're actually watching us. They could be. But I believe he's saying that they are a testimony to us on how to live by faith in a world of suffering. Abel did the right thing and his brother kills him. You think about, you think about Noah. Noah, it has never rained on earth before. And so what's Noah got to do? I know this is a simple question, but what does Noah have to do? Anybody? What does he have to do? 
He's got to build an ark. He's got to build this giant boat. This is not some little, you know, skiff or something. This is a giant boat he's got to build. And it's going to, some say it took him 120 years. It hadn't rained yet. It's not raining. God's telling him he's going to flood the earth. So he's got to believe this. And the world around him is continuing to fight against God. And basically, Jesus says they're, they're just not changing. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. The world didn't change. They continued to go the direction that they've always been going in. So he's acting by faith. There's numerous people listed there. He, Moses, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Why does it say that? Moses was picked out of the river by who? Anybody know? The Egyptian. The Egyptian. Pharaoh's, you know, his, he's raised in Pharaoh's court. He spends 40 years. And all of a sudden, he decides, okay, this is not right. And after the call of God in, in the wilderness, he's like, no, I don't need that. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do the right thing. He'd rather be dis along the, with disgrace for the sake of Christ than have all the treasures of Egypt. He was looking ahead. A great cloud of witnesses. Not only do we have people in the Bible that follow Christ, suffer for their faith, believe God, trust God. You can read about it in Hebrews 11, but that's all through the scriptures. But there's great stories in church history. I love reading. Some of you go, oh, church history, yawn. I love reading church history because it inspires me that these people did things that were just amazing. And you go, well, I'm not a reader. Okay, watch some movies then. There's some great movies out there. I'm talking about church history movies, okay, not just regular movies. I got one for you. Here's a movie. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but you may know. Harriet Tubman. Tubman. Harriet. It's called Harriet. My wife and I just watched it this week. True story. And what was she known for? Harriet Tubman. Freeing slaves. This is what you're going to get in the trailer, so this is not a spoiler alert, okay? She was a slave in Maryland. She escapes on her own. Usually they went in groups. She escaped on her own, made it out of slavery, ends up in Philadelphia and says, I'm going back. This is a single woman. I'm going back. I'm going to get my family. That's what started her. And you know, the crazy part is she had extreme strong faith, and she kept going back, kept going back. They believe she's, she freed more between 70 to over 100, some say even 300 slaves. She kept going back. She didn't care about the suffering. She didn't care about being caught. Christianity said this with regard to her. Christianity Today, was Christian magazine, said this. Tubman said she would listen carefully to the voice of God. As she led slaves north, and she would only go where she felt God was leading her. Fellow abolitionist Thomas Garrett said of her, I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God. And this movie really portrays this. It's amazing. Usually Hollywood tries to take that stuff out. You know, that's not politically correct. It's just in there. And it's like she gets to a place where she's wondering which way to go. And she falls on her knees and says, God, what do I do? 
This is a quote from her. I don't know how to say that first word, but it wasn't me, I guess. "'Twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust in you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me, and he always did. You go, well, church history, okay, I'm not going to read it. Watch the movie, see how it inspires you, because God has a great cloud of witnesses that can encourage us in our faith in the midst of suffering. Some great stories of the work of God. Jettison the baggage in, in the book of Acts. Paul's on a ship. The ship hits a storm, and all of a sudden what they do is they start throwing the baggage overboard because they realize if they don't get lighten the load of the ship, it's not going to make it. And in this race that you're running, we all carry baggage. There's always stuff. And the writer of Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That word hinders simply means an extra weight. Something that could weigh you down. I mean, you don't see runners, you don't see runners with big backpacks on. All right, here we go. This, I think this word doesn't refer to sin itself. This could be something that is, is tripping you up that has not sinned, but it has become an obsession for you. I don't know, maybe like cell phone. You know, everybody's gathered together. They're trying to have a meal together, and there you are on your cell phone. Like everybody else is invisible. I'm, I'm just saying, I don't know. You know? If it's hindering you in your walk, if it's hindering you in relationships, maybe it's you got to, you know, kind of cut it down a little bit. Internet, who knows? Just take that list and go, hmm, what is slowing me down? Here's the key word here, entangles. And the sin that so easily entangles. That word, entangles, means it enslaves you. It could be something that's good, like phones are good. I mean, they help us, but it could become a slave. Internet's good, but it could become a slave. Money is something that we use, but when we love it and we put it above other things, it can enslave us. And he's saying, throw it off, get rid of it, deal with it. This word here, entangles, it's, it's the word of enslaving or encircling. It's the word of constricting. It's squeezing the spiritual life out of you. Now, Lisa and our daughter and her son, Ayrton, went to Oklahoma not too long ago, and about a week ago. And Ayrton always likes to push my buttons. He's our grandson. He's five. And I've told you this. He, he knows I hate snakes. Okay, so they went to the zoo. And I said, Ayrton, when you go to the zoo, the, the zoo in Oklahoma City, it's a really cool zoo. I've been there. Send me a picture of a giraffe or a rhinoceros or an elephant. It was like I was talking to the wall. He's like, yeah, pop up, right. <laughs> he had them take a picture of a anaconda. <laughs> and this thing is massive. I guess that's one of the largest snakes in the world. Can go up to like 33 feet long. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I hate snakes. <laughs> and it's a part of the boa family. But the way it kills its prey, it squeezes it. till there's no life left. Is there something in your life right now 
It may seem innocent. It may be all right. It may be not anything evil, but it's squeezing the spiritual life out of you and you go, I got to get rid of that. I got to deal with this. It's hindering me. It's keeping me from running the race. It's a marathon, not a sprint. He says, and let us run with perseverance. There's that word endurance. It's translated differently here. Perseverance, the race marked out for us. Don't quit. It's a sad thing. I see it happen. It almost happened to me. I see it happen when people come to faith in Christ. They're all excited. They get baptized. Problems come into their life. They're like, I didn't sign up for this. And they walk away. They walk away. And yet he's telling us here, persevere, don't give up. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I've known people that have run marathons. And they don't just go to the, you know, to the, the race and go, okay, I'm ready to run. They train, they work, they eat right, they do different things to get ready. Keep your eyes on the Savior. Hebrews 12, 2-4 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, there's that word again, despising the shame. Sometimes we don't realize the, the immense shame that Jesus had to put up with. Not only was it a shame with regard to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament it said that you would be cursed if you were hung on a tree, hung on a cross. Cursed of God! He became our curse, according to Galatians. But also in the New Testament times, that was the worst way to die, crucifixion. Just read about it again for the first time in the Gospels. I mean, they tortured him, beat him, took his clothes away. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. This is what the exhortation to us. Consider him, consider the Son of Man, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And so it's easy to take our eyes off Christ, isn't it? This, this reminded me of the story of Peter. When Peter and the disciples are in the boat, and it's in the middle of the night. Jesus sends them out on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, it's really a setup. He's setting them up. Jesus is praying in the mountains, and all of a sudden they see this glowing figure come across the water, and they go, ah, it's a ghost. And he's like, no, I am. That's what he says, literally. In other words, Yahweh's here, quoting the Old Testament. The glowing person, the, the, the glory of God is coming off of him, because he is God. And Peter's like, all right, I'm inspired now. Lord, if it's you, let me walk out on the water. He begins to walk on the water. Now, don't throw Peter under the boat, okay? He's the only one that gets out of the boat. But he begins to sink. Why? Why does he begin to sink? He took his eyes off Christ, and what was he looking at? The storm, the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves. It happens to me. Problems come into my life. Issues, family issues, children, no, the kids have been perfect. <laughs> when trouble comes, where do you tend to look for help? Or where do your eyes go? <laughs> do they go off of Christ? Do they go on to what's going on in your life, going on to the problems? 
And you just go, ah, oh, I can't handle it. And Jesus is like, just look to me. I'll take care of you. I know what's going on. I'll help you. Welcome the discipline. This word in Hebrews chapter 12 is really referring to child rearing. Unfortunately, people see the word discipline today and, and, and for years, they see it as one aspect. But when it's referring to child rearing in the scriptures, it refers to the total all encompassing work to help a child become mature. In the Old Testament, especially the book of Proverbs, it was used of instruction, teaching them right things, inspiring them, encouraging them. Yes, there are times of correction, but it was always, always done in love. And that's God's motivation. God is motivated by love. He is rearing children who have come to know him. He says, I love you, and I'm going to work in you. That's why Jesus put up with those disciples, because he loves them, he loved them. That's why he puts up with us, because he loves us. Listen to what it says. Quoting, some of this is quote from Proverbs. And you have, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? that addresses you as a father addresses his son. He says, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their fathers. The motivation behind God is that he loves us. He is doing things motivated by love. That whole hardship thing, that refers to trials and temptations, issues that you face, health issues that God's allowing in your life. He does it because he loves us. Growing up, there was seven of us kids. So my parents, boy, they really had their hands full. There's, we were part of the baby boomer crowd. That's why we're called baby boomers. There's a lot of babies happened all at once. My brother, this is hard to believe, but you may, some of you may have heard this story already, but my brother and I walked to school. We walked a, a block to school by ourselves. You're like, what? Yeah. He was in third grade. I was in first grade. And I remember the fear I had of going into first grade. I was like, I'm not going. The very first day of school. And mom got us clothes and gave us lunch money. We walked all the way around and got right to the gate of the school. This was in Mattydale, Betsy B. Reardon School. Standing right at the gate, I said to my brother, I said, I'm not going to school today. He goes, why not? He said, I'm not. Here's my lunch money. That's probably why he kept quiet. <laughs> Took the lunch money and I... I ran all the way home. He cried and went into school. I skipped school for three days as a first grader. Slept under the back porch of the house. True story. I snuck into the house. Nobody was home, but I snuck into the house, go to the bathroom, get a little snacks and stuff. On the third day, there were some guys in the house working on the kitchen. They were carpenters. They ratted me out. They said to my mom, they said, do you... Do you have a little dark-haired little boy? He's like, you know, so high. He's sleeping under your back porch. <clears throat> I'm like, oh, great. Then my mom said, did, have you been not going to school? I said, yeah. Okay, you're going to talk to your dad. And I'm like, oh, no. 
That night, we had a picnic at the, some friends in the neighborhood. Everybody's having fun, and I'm dreading talking to my dad. Took me to the front porch of the house, his friend's house, one of those big porches with the pillars, and set me up on the shelf on that front porch. He sits in his lawn chair smoking his big stogie, and he looks up at me, and he goes, Kenny, why didn't you go to school? Why didn't you go to school? Kenny, why didn't you go to school? Why were you skipping school? What's the matter? As tears were streaming down my eyes, he's like, it's okay. And he gave me a big hug and he goes, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. You know, I never skipped school again. Well, maybe senior skip day. But <laughs> never skipped school again. I was so motivated by his love. And that's the way God is approaching his children. He loves us, so he disciplines us in love. Are you convinced that God is motivated by love, or do you have doubts? Do you think, oh, maybe he doesn't really love me. Why would he let this happen in my life? Why is he treating me like this? This scripture is very clear. God loves you. The test of legitimacy if you're not disciplined, if you're not experiencing the work of God in your life, he says, and everyone undergoes discipline, referring to every believer, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. If you're doing things and you don't feel any conviction, you don't see anything going on, and you're, you're ah, no big deal, you might want to think twice about whether you really know Christ or not. This verse in, in 2 Corinthians, it says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? If you fail the test and you're not sure, I would tell you right now, do something about it. Invite Christ into your life. Trust in him alone as your savior. Open your heart to him. God's goal for us. Here it is. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, well, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. By the way, that word discipline is used like 10 times in this passage because that's the theme of this section of Hebrews. God's doing it for our good. My parents would discipline us like, oh, this is going to hurt me more than you. I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> in order that we may share in his holiness. That's a misunderstood word. It's the idea that he wants us to turn away from sin and follow him. Turn away from what's destructive in our lives. Turn away from what can hurt us, sin, and to turn toward being more like Christ, which is good. It's the best way to live. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, that's for sure, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I can look back to the way my parents disciplined me, the whole thing, and I go, you know, they didn't even know Christ, and yet their desire was to do what was right and good. And I can see that. As I, when I listened to them, it really was something good. Good things came out of it. Embrace the community. See, God wants us to run the race and not quit. 
He wants us to make sure that we see that he is disciplining us and developing us because he cares about us, he loves us. But there's a community of believers that God has placed us within that he desires for us to realize we are, it's so important for us, for our spiritual healing, to be connected to other people in the body of Christ. In the same context, he says this, therefore, as a conclusion, therefore, and he's not talking about physical problems. He's, talking, he's using these as like figures of speech. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. I tell you, this body of believers here has been invaluable in my spiritual growth. The way people have spoken into my life, the way people have challenged me, that word healed is referring to spiritual healing. Real spiritual health is only possible, I believe, through the, a healthy body, the church, as the church does what God says to do. Here's a neat passage with regard to this same concept, James 5, 16. It's more than 16, it's actually 16 to 18. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. You can't do that with everybody. You've got to find that one or two people that you really trust that's not going to throw you under the bus or go, you're doing that? Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Then he used the illustration from the Old Testament of Elijah. Elijah was one of the prophets. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Why did he pray that it wouldn't rain? Anybody know? What was going on in Israel? Idolatry. Ahab and Jezebel had led the whole nation astray. They were spiritually unhealthy. God sends discipline. He sends no rain. They were totally dependent upon rainfall, not like Egypt that had irrigation. They needed rainfall. For three and a half years, they had no rain. Elijah was responsible for that because he was a prophet of God. It was God's way to, to wake them up. Israel needed spiritual healing, so God withheld rain from them until they repented, until they turned away. Where do you need God's touch for spiritual healing? What's going on in your life that you go, man, this is really dragging me down. This is really keeping me from running the race the way I should. But it's going to be painful. Then give it to God. He wants to help you. No pain, no gain. Do you try to avoid suffering for Christ? Do you try to just set that cross aside and go, I really don't want to suffer. I just want that great... Fruits of the Spirit without having to really love people by faith. It's not going to work. There is suffering as a follower of Christ. What causes you to take your eyes off Jesus while running the race? What's pulling you down? What's dragging you? Get rid of it. How do you view God's discipline as good or evil? That he's out to get you or that he really loves you? And how can you embrace the community of believers so you can be spiritually healthy? Let's pray together. Father, we know that this life that you have called us to, that salvation is a free gift.
totally purchased by Jesus. He was the ransom. The Son of Man suffered, died, rose again, cried out from the cross. It's finished. And all we had to do is look to him, look to the Savior, as we learned last week, that he is the one who takes away our sins, the penalty for our sins when we trust in him alone. Yet, Lord Jesus, you said if we want to be your disciples, if we want to be your followers, there's going to be pain. Help us to realize by the power of your spirit, by your help, by your enabling, that you can help us live the life that pleases you. Lord, as we participate in communion today, help us to reflect upon what you did, how you suffered at the hands of people who who hated you, wanted to kill you, and, and they did, and yet you rose again. You were victorious. Help us to realize that when we follow you, people won't always be cheering us on. In fact, they may be trying to attack. And so, Lord, help us to live a life that honors you, to please you. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Faith Podcast. At Vintage Faith, our vision is to help people who are far from God to become totally devoted followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast brought you closer to God. For more information, check us out at vintagefaithcicero.com.